Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. Our vision is to extend and establish the influence of the kingdom of God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Last week I spoke on the prevailing word of God, the word that comes out of God's mouth, um, God's now word, if you like, not just God's word as we know it in terms of the Bible, as true as that may be and as true and as eternal as that word is, how and where we apply that word to our lives, uh, lives and work that out is very much dependent on the prevailing word of God, the word of God that comes. We looked at Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, who found himself, God took him in a vision to a valley of dry bones. And he said to him, what do you see? And he said, I see these bones and they're really, really dry. And he said, can these bones live? And the prophet said, only you know, Lord. And so the Lord said, prophesy to these bones. Say this and this and that. And Ezekiel said the words that God told him to say. And suddenly bone came together, bone to its bone. And sinews came and, and uh, flesh and all these things were added to the bones. And then again, God puts a word in Ezekiel's mouth and he says, Say to these bones, or say to call to the winds, the east, the north, the southwest, and call them in. And the winds came and blew, and they filled, and there stood a mighty army. And the principle that I brought out yesterday is that there is tremendous, or last week, there is tremendous power in the prophetic spoken word of God. When God speaks, things happen. Amen? But when it comes to our lives, how many of you would love God's voice to thunder down from heaven and just speak things and set them straight? Some of you, yes, yeah, some of you, uh-uh. <laughs> but the way God speaks today, mostly, not exclusively, but mostly, is going to be through you. And the way God is going to bring change in your life is through the words that come out of your mouth and the decisions that you make and begin to speak out over your life, over your family, etc., etc. We looked at Isaiah, how God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that His ways are higher than our ways. And in the time and the season that we're in, God's word to us, although it's coming in many different ways and shapes and forms, remains the same. There's a call from the heart of God that we would catch His heart to the extent that we begin speaking out over our lives and over our situations, what he is saying, the prevailing word of God. That, that word prevailing is, is a loaded word because it means that he's coming forth, it is coming out constantly, it, it's prevailing, it's ongoing, but it also is an overcoming word. Something that prevails is something that consistently overcomes. Amen? God says of his word that the words that I speak never return to me void. Never. They always accomplish that that I send them out to do. So knowing what God is saying gives us access to His power and His victory. Knowing what God says, knowing what God is saying, gives us access to His power and to His victory. But saying what God says releases that power and that victory on our behalf. We looked at how the tongue is a mighty, mighty weapon. The tongue is a carrier of seed. The words you speak are seeds. And as you sow them, they will germinate and they will grow. Whatever heart is in your words, whatever is behind your words, whatever is in the words that you speak, 
has the power to either create life or bring death, either tear down and destroy or plant and build up and grow. And we looked finally at the centurion, who was a wonderful example, who understood the power of authority and the spoken word of God, where he came to Jesus and said, please, would you, come, would you heal my servant? And Jesus said, sure, I'll come to your house. Let's go. And he said, no, 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 no. I'm not worthy that you come under my roof, but just say the word. You speak it. You release it, and my servant will be healed. And the Bible says Jesus marveled because he'd not seen such great faith in all of Israel, he said. Somebody who understood authority and somebody who understood the power of the spoken or the prevailing word of God. And like I say, we're on a journey of capturing this heart of God, being able to, to discern God's voice and be led by it. And the New Testament has a lot to say about it, and we're going to look at one of the, the scriptures concerning that today. So if you've got your Bibles with you, please open to the book of Romans. And we're going to be talking today a bit about being led by the Spirit of God and the way we see things and the way God sees things and, and tying some of these things together. So Romans, we're going to look at, start in chapter 7, verse 15. I'm going to stop here and there and I'm going to read some other scriptures along the way. We're going to read right the way through to Romans 8, verse 17. But like I say, along the way, I'm going to stop and deviate a little bit as we go through this portion of scripture. So you just stay there. Everything else we'll put up on the screen. It'll be good for us to just work through this together slowly. And so here we have Paul, apostle. And if you understand the dialogue between, well, the, in Romans and the argument that he's building, it's a fairly lengthy portion of, of a fairly lengthy argument, a big thing that he's opening up here in the battle between grace and sin, the flesh and the spirit, newness of life in Jesus Christ, but yet still this flesh thing that brings us down. And he's trying to reconcile all of this. And if you come through, you know, into chapter 6, he says, so... You know, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But I don't use that grace as a license for more sin. Just, just that grace abounds not to, not to cover sin, but to overcome it so that we can live not according to the flesh, not according to our thinking, not according to our ways, which lead to destruction, but we can live according to the word and the will and the ways of God, which lead to life, which lead to victory, which lead to overcoming all areas of life. So let's tuck into Romans chapter 7 from verse 15. Amen. There goes the clarion. Here we go. Someone's excited. For what I am doing, I do not understand. Let's pause for a moment. How many of you would expect those words from the Apostle Paul? We come to the Bible for wisdom and Paul's like, yeah, what I'm doing, I don't, I don't understand. How many of you find that encouraging? I find that really encouraging. That Paul, I can kind of identify with Paul in his humanity and he's journeying this thing out and sometimes it just doesn't always make sense. He says, what I'm doing, doing I don't understand. For what I want to do, what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. In other words, the desire to do good, the desire to follow God is in me. But how to perform that good will, I cannot find. 
For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Let's pause for a moment, because there's a few things I want to highlight from this portion of Scripture. Paul is not conflicted here. Paul is not saying his sinful life is okay. In fact, he says, what Paul is drawing here is a parallel between the law and the power of the Spirit. The law has the power or the ability to show us what is right and what is good, and show us what is wrong. But it has no power within it to make us live what is good and not do what is wrong. And he's saying he sees there's a law in his members that wills to go against what his heart, his new created, recreated spirit man, desires and longs for. But if you follow through this portion of Scripture, what you'll find is this, this, Paul gives us a key here. And the key lies in the principle of identification. Who and what and how you identify with something determines how you relate to that something. If I had to say the word Liverpool... There's some people in here who just have a little twinge. Hey, Uncle Nick, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you this morning. <laughs> Stephen will be listening, hopefully, by, uh, by recording, so I can't get a chirp from him this morning. Why? Because some people associate themselves as fans of Liverpool, other people associate themselves as fans of Manchester United, and never the twain shall meet. In our country and in our culture, this is especially relevant. There's an association that takes place there, which puts me on a side, and I identify with that side, and I'm a fan of it. If I say Stormers, or if I say the Springboks, so everyone kind of has an, a sport affiliation, and it's a really good way of understanding this analogy. What Paul is doing in this portion of Scripture is he's identifying himself, not with his sin, but with his righteousness. He is identifying himself in Christ. That's why he's saying these things that I identify myself in righteousness as Christ, as forgiven, as whole, but there's this other thing that keeps wanting to draw me into this life of, of doing the wrong thing. And I end up doing what I don't want to do, because what I want to do is who I identify myself with. Do you understand? One of the secrets to walking in a life of righteousness, to overcoming sin and addiction and whatever it may be, or any kind of bondage, is who, and we, who we identify with. Identifying with Christ unlocks within us the power of His righteousness to bring out salvation in our lives. But identifying with our sin keeps us in that bondage. It keeps us in what is in the past. I once heard somebody say, you know, Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, he paid for our sin, past, present, and future. It is it, and, and when that happened, our sin was taken away from us, and we stand righteous in his presence. That is in our past. It is not in our future. How many of you know, as soon as you've been forgiven by Jesus, sin is in your past. It's not in your future. And so what happens is if we continue to identify with our sin, it's as though we, we are bringing something that is in the past that is technically non-existent. It doesn't belong to you anymore. It is not your sin anymore. It's been taken from you. And you're trying to bring that into this new life that you're trying to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You hold yourself back. Let's carry on from verse 21. Paul says, I find then a law that, is, that, that evil is present with me. 
the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who? Oh, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so he acknowledges that there's this pool and he sees it and, and it's, what I love about this is he doesn't make it a trivial thing. It's a war. He says there's something, there's a war going on in my mind. These two forces are battling and warring against one another. But I thank God through Jesus Christ there is victory. And he says, so, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How much condemnation? None. Why? Because the sin and the flesh have been dealt with. The victory has been won over these things. And you're saying, but Michael, Paul's talking here that he's struggling to make this victory work. And I have experienced that this victory is hard sometimes to make work over the flesh and over my struggles. But I want you to note the, the point from which he comes. He says, there, there is now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you'll see there the rest of that verse says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Folks, if you go back to the original manuscripts, the rest of that verse is not there. If you look in your Bible, you look in the margin. It is put there, I'm assuming, we don't know why, perhaps to help understand something. And it makes a point which is actually made again a little bit later. I think it's in verse 4 or 5. But Paul actually makes a statement, and he doesn't continue that statement. He closes that statement off. It's a closed statement. He says, there is now, because of Jesus, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Period. End. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the like likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk. And here you have it. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So here Paul goes on and he continues breaking this down. And he gives us the key or the answer to where the victory of this life of Jesus becoming manifest in our lives lies. And where is that victory? Where is that key? Where is the arena that this battles itself out? It's in the area of our minds. It's in who we identify ourselves with. And what power we identify ourselves with. Amen? You see, Jesus' name is victorious. Jesus has conquered the law of sin and death, the Bible says. And He has given us the law of life, the law of His Holy Spirit. But you and I get to choose which law we live under. 
And how do we do that? We do that by the way that we think. We do that by who we focus on and who we identify ourselves with. Remember, I read to you earlier on in our time of prayer. Last week we spoke about Isaiah chapter 55. It says, His ways... Let me read it to you. Isaiah 55. Thus says the Lord, the high and lofty... Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to read that verse. I want to read... Oh, no wonder. I mean, Isaiah 57. No wonder I can't find it. Here we are. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is drawing this, this distinction. He's saying, this way, my way is way above anything that could happen here. My laws, my decrees, my name is way above anything that goes on over here. But in the previous verse, in verse 7, there's a key for us. Let the wicked forsake his way. Now let's just pause there. Wicked does not just mean those who are out there and murdering and you know, pursuing. Wickedness is, is, is a spirit, it's a heart of rebellion. It is the one who seeks to do his own way. It's the one who seeks to do his own thing. He says that, and, and that spirit is what, what Paul is even grappling with here. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, there's another spirit, there's another force here dragging me, pulling me into something where I don't necessarily want to be, where I don't want to go. And it says, let that one, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord. Let him align himself identify himself, focus on the Lord. And it says, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In other words, he will forgive. And then he goes on to say, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. So as you turn to me, I will take you from this level that you are working in and working on to another level. And that's, even, that's in the old covenant. How much more for you and me today in a new covenant dispensation? where the Spirit of God and the Word of God is victory within our lives. This has to do with who and what we focus on. How many of you have been to an optometrist, to an optician? I don't know what the difference between an optician and an optometrist is. Thank you. One just does glasses, the other one does more. So, a couple of years ago, my daughter had a school concert, and as part of her costume, she had to be dressed as a duck. <laughs> Costume-making duties in my home falls upon me. <laughs> and at that stage, she still had trouble by herself getting her shirts over her head by herself and getting them on and off. And, and as part of this play, she had to get this costume on and off. So what I did is we had a bright yellow t-shirt and stuck feathers all over the thing. And so I cut it down the middle and put Velcro on it. But then it, it was going to start fraying, and the Velcro had a sticky stuff, but as soon as you pulled it, it came with the shirt. So actually what needed to happen here is I needed to sew a seam into this thing. And so I sewed. <laughs> I'll have you know. A Velcro strip into my daughter's costume. But I don't have a sewing machine, and so it was a few late nights of sitting with a needle and thread. I don't know if there's a technique to this, but the Velcro is still there. So it did its job. But it was late at night, and what happened was I was working and stitching this, and 
I started getting so dizzy and a little nauseous and I got a headache. And I thought, whoa, I don't know what's going on here. I don't normally get headaches. I don't normally suffer from vertigo or anything like that. So I kind of left it for a while. And then the following night, the same thing happened. I'm sitting there and so I thought, you know, it must be my eyes. I'm struggling to focus. So I went to go have my eyes checked. I thought, maybe there's something going on here. And I went to the optometrist, I think it was. And, uh, and they, how many of you have ever been? It's quite an experience to go have, it's quite a daunting thing. They take you into this tiny little room, and it's badly lit, and there's a test up on the wall that somehow you feel you need to pass. <laughs> Even though you know probably your eyes aren't quite right, you feel this need that, that you need to do well in this test. And then it makes you read some letters, assuming you can read. And then he puts this big thing over you, over your face. And he starts flipping these dials. He starts saying, you know, which is better, one or two? <laughs> one or two? There's no difference. Which is, let's try this one. Which is better, one or two? Which is the green greener or the red clearer? It's very confusing. And then he'll sort of do one eye. And he says, which eye do you see better in? Or which is it better with? With both eyes. It's better with both eyes. That's why God gave me two. But, and they start doing all these tests to try and, you know, and they've got this other machine and they want to, I don't know what they're trying to test, but they put a, a puff of air into your eye. Now, I don't know about you, I'm not, I'm not accustomed to puffs of air going into my body. <laughs> Out is another story, but in is, and they test all these things. And as I was thinking about this word and I was thinking about work, walking in the spirit, I was reminded of an optician, and I thought, why? And the more I started thinking about it, I could start drawing the parallels. And let me draw some for you. When you go to visit an optometrist, they perform a number of checks on your eyes. They evaluate both the actual condition of your eye, in other words, your eyeball. They take a photo of the inside. They blow some air into it. They, they look at your, the health of your veins and all that kind of stuff of your actual eye. But they also evaluate the condition of your sight, how well you can see. They take it, like I said, they take a photo of the inside of your eye and they can tell a lot about your vision by that. Dark spots and all kinds of things. They will ask you, they will ask you questions. Like they'll put things in front of you and they'll say, what do you see? What do you see? What is clearer to you? What makes, you know, what, what, what is better focused for you? And so they put all these tests and what is the purpose of these tests? The purpose of these tests is not for you to get the answer right. The purpose of these tests is to help them ascertain what is it that you are seeing. What is going on with your perception? And I think very often in the Holy Spirit, when we begin to sit down with the Word of God, Holy Spirit begins to ask us questions as I begin to read. What do you see? Is that clear to you? Perhaps in your circumstance, no, but perhaps in another scripture or another circumstance, yes, it is. You see, the way we work on focusing on the things of the Spirit is by regularly performing these kinds of tests on ourselves and making the necessary adjust adjustments as we go. We use the Word of God as our tester. It tells us that the way I'm perceiving something, the way I'm seeing something, the way I'm looking at the situation is not focused according to the way God would view it. 
it's not right. My focus is out. I'm coming at it from a different perspective, not from the perspective of God. And here's what happens. When you have finished your eye test and they've evaluated your eyes, they will give you a prescription. And they will say, these are what you need. And you put them on and you go, wow, I can see. So obviously, I, I could see just fine. The problem with my eyes is that it was just late at night, doing fine work, and I was tired. That was the conclusion they came up with, because my eyes were just fine. But the point is this, if you do have a problem with your eyes, if you do have a problem with your sight, you get the optometrist will give you the right lenses, he will give you the right thing so that you can get the right perspective. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does with us through the Word of God and by His leading and by His unction. As we go throughout the day, the way we see things, the way we perceive things, is not right. It's out of focus according to God's standard and God's way. And He helps us and He prescribes for us. And I mean, you know, many people have their glasses on their face 24-7. Other people, like Liesl over there, just have her glasses on their head. They're there in case she needs them. She knows that in certain situations, there's a weakness that she needs a bit of help with. Amen? How many of you have certain situations in your lives that are not a perpetual thing, but in certain situations, you need them? Perhaps you don't struggle with anger as a day-to-day -day thing until you drive. I can see that one hit a nerve. Perhaps you don't struggle with gluttony until there's chocolate cake. I don't know. But the, have you got your glasses to view that, that particular thing? Perhaps you don't struggle with relationships except with... You put in the name. The Word of God has something to say about that because there's a perspective that God wants you to get about that certain situation, that certain person. Once an optometrist has discovered the shortcomings, he prescribes glasses so that we can see clearly. Let me read you a verse from Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says this, If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. This is what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this battle and he's saying there's, there's, there's these forces going on here. There's my heart that longs to do things. Where am I going to set my focus? Where am I going to identify? And here in Colossians, he writes to them and he says, set your mind. What is something that is set? Something that is set is something that doesn't deviate. I want to say that again. A mind that is set is a mind that doesn't deviate. We live in an age today, I know most of the younger folk here will understand what I'm talking about. You're trying to get work done, but there's these constant distractions. People say things on Twitter, like, all the time. And then there's your Facebook, go, doo -doo. and then you've got SMSs, and you... I've had to learn to close all of that stuff down so that I can actually set my mind on certain things. We live in an age of distraction. How many of you, by a show of hands, watch TV with your phones in your hand? See? the young ones. We cannot just sit and watch TV. And we cannot just read our phones. We can do both. We multitask. And we check our emails, and we're on here, and then we're there. Our minds are not set. Our minds are all over the place. Paul says, set your mind. He carries on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3-5, to 5, he says this, we are human. 
Thanks for confirming that, Paul. I was wondering about some of us, but praise God. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. So there is something here of putting our focus and knowing what it is that Jesus says so that we can identify every other voice for what it is. Jesus says it this way, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. When our hearts are set there, and our, our identification is right with Jesus, with his righteousness, it becomes very easy for us to identify forces and influences that are not from him. Temptation becomes a lot easier to pick up. Amen? So we don't succumb to it quite so easily. This is what Paul, in Ephesians 6, he talks about the armor of God, and this is what the armor is for. Stand therefore, putting on the breastplate of righteousness. That protects your heart, that protects your vital organs. The righteousness of God will protect you. And then it calls it the helmet of salvation. Our salvation, our position in Jesus Christ should be like a helmet protecting our noggin from all the wrong kinds of thoughts. Everything gets filtered through the salvation. Gird your waist with the belt of truth. Now it's very interesting. A warrior's sword is held on his belt. The truth of who you are in Jesus Christ holds up the only offensive weapon you've got. So if you don't get this right, you are going to struggle. To, you're never going to use the sword because you're undermined before you even pull it out of its sheath. You can't even find the thing. It's lying somewhere on the floor. Gird your waist with the belt of truth, the truth of Jesus Christ, the truth of who you are. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, that wherever I go, I am bringing that peace. I am bringing that spirit. I am bringing that focus that I have and what I'm receiving from there, that perspective that I have from God, I bring that wherever I go and that brings life and peace. I have the shield of faith because guess what? The enemy is going to come and he's going to try and attack. He's going to try and come in. So I've got a shield for him and I've got the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. The prevailing Word of God spoken through my mouth bringing in the entrance of His Lordship and His rule and His reign. Regular checks on your eyes keep your vision good. They make sure that you have the right prescription. They make sure that you're seeing things clearly as you should so that you can do what you need to do to the best of your abilities. Folks, before you can drive, they test your eyes. They won't give you a license how many of you are grateful they checked your eyes before they give you a license? Why? Because people out there are driving cars. If they can't see, they're going to cause a lot of damage. And I want to tell you this. There's a lot of believers out there who can't see what God is saying. And because of that, they're causing a lot of damage. A lot of damage to themselves and a lot of damage to other people. Regular checks with our spiritual optometrist, Holy Spirit, helps us keep the prescribed Word of God for any given situation at the forefront of our minds so that we can see it clearly and respond accordingly. 
You know what the other nice thing is about when you, when, you, when you go to the optician, remember I said, and he says, which is better, one or two? One or two? One or two? And you give your answer, and he goes, okay, let's try again. Which is better, one or two? One or two? And you give your answers. All right, let's do another one. Which is better, one or two? One or two? Until you can eventually see the difference and go, ah, got it. And he goes, aha, okay, I see where you're at now. There's a eureka moment for both of you. Things become clearer. The further he goes down the line of those tests, the clearer things become. And likewise, Holy Spirit, you, when, you, when you are engaging in situations, when you're engaging in the Word of God, when you're listening to the voice of the Spirit within you, you're going to be in situations and he's going to go, Michael, which way are you going to go here? This way or that way? How are you going to handle the situation? This way or that way? And the beautiful thing is, when we get it wrong, next time he just says, okay, which way are we going to go this time? This way or that way? And the next time, which way are we going to go? This way or that way? I think the Holy Spirit, in fact, I don't think I know, I believe with all my heart, the Holy Spirit is a lot more robust than many have come to make us believe. Many of us think that the Holy Spirit is this little dove. Now, yes, he comes in the image of a dove and he's gentle. But we get the idea that if I do one thing wrong or I jerk, then off goes the dove. We get the idea that Holy Spirit comes into our services and he kind of sits in the back row and he's watching everything we do and he's just waiting for us to do something wrong. And then we slip up or we mess because, oh, I've had enough of this, and he walks out as if. Holy Spirit is a lot more robust than that. Holy Spirit is the one who went down to hell and brought Jesus up from there. He has tremendous power. And He is with you and me and in you and me every single day. And He is the one who's wanting to help us through these tests and through the, way, the things that we have to deal with, through our grappling with the Word of God and making it come life and light in our circumstances and situations. He works within us that power to bring revelation. What the Scriptures that we're reading teach us is that whatever we focus on, our hearts will follow after. If we continue to focus and identify with our sin, we will empower those influences in our lives. You cannot overcome habitual sin by continually focusing on it. It's impossible. You need to change your focus. You need to change what you spend your, your, your mental space on. We will not be able to discern God's voice of righteousness and insight as long as we are focusing on our sin. But if we identify ourselves with Christ's righteousness and we focus on the Spirit and life, and the vic then life and victory will flow. If we go back to Romans, it says, because the carnal mind, this is Romans uh, 8 verse 7, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it cannot be subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As long as we remain identifying with our weakness, as long as we insist on doing things our way, thinking our way about people or situations, we cannot please God. This is what, Peter, what, what Jesus was confronting in Peter. You remember the occasion where G Peter has this wonderful revelation, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he says, Peter, flesh and blood has not belong, revealed this to you, and... Yeah, you, you're so wonderful, you're amazing. And then Jesus goes on and he says, I need to go to Jerusalem now because it's, it's time, I'm going to be crucified. 
And Peter says to him, if I read, I read from Matthew 16, from verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the, hand, or from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. And he said, You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. What was it that was offensive? What was Peter's issue? For one moment, he was mindful of the things of God and not the things of men. And then a moment later, he was mindful of the things of men and not the plans, purposes of God. If you read it in the New Living Translation, he says, Peter, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. In other words, Peter, don't tempt me here. I'm having enough trouble getting to Jerusalem as it is. We're fooled if we think Jesus went to the cross with a smile on his face. He went to the cross with agony. That's what Gethsemane was all about. Father, if there's any other way, please. But nevertheless, your will. And so here we're saying, Peter, Peter's saying, after this wonderful revelation, and I'm, I'm sure that in some ways Jesus' heart must have just opened up to Peter and said, okay, he's finally getting this. He's hearing from the Father. The things that are coming out of him now are starting to be inspired by the Spirit. And the very next thing from the same man's mouth comes, no, 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 surely you shouldn't die. And Jesus says, no, no. Don't tempt me. Don't try and trap me like this. And he says, you are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. If we want to experience the life that Christ came to give us, we need to see things from God's perspective. Let's continue, Romans 8, verse 9. But you are not in the flesh. Say, I am not in the flesh. But in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now, really? Is your body dead? No, but I identify myself no longer with the body and its fleshly lusts. They are dead to me. I consider them no more. The body is dead of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, but to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the, of, of, of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. That speaks of the mature sons of God. A son, the definition of a, of a, of a mature son, a true son, is that they accurate, accurately represent their father. They, so in, when we come and we are led by the Spirit of God, we become true sons of God. And in the same way that Jesus accurately represented His Father here on earth, even saying to His disciples, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father, so we become the same. Accurate representations of God the Father because we are led by His Spirit. 
For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Dad, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are So where do I identify myself? I am a child of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be glorified together. Folks, we can only be led by the Spirit of God to the degree that we cooperate with the Spirit of God. And there are situations in your life, there's situations in my life, thoughts, desires, intentions, some of which are born of God and carry within them the life-giving power of God, but some of which are just born of my own pride, some of which are born of my own fleshly desires, which can bring about nothing but temporary carnal pleasure leading to death. See, unless we see things that way, Sin holds its allure. Sin is alluring. It's pleasurable. Do you agree with me? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a problem for us. That's why our hearts gravitate towards these things. But when we begin to identify ourselves in a different way, we open up the ability for the Holy Spirit to begin leading us in overcoming flesh, in overcoming stinking thinking, in overcoming the ways of this world that the ways and the plans and the purposes of God for our lives may come to fruition. Where we begin to take on a likeness of Jesus Christ because the flesh is done away with. We consider it dead and we walk in newness of life. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.